As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. On this episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the vaccine rollout and you ask us, does a scotch egg count as a substantial meal? We're speaking in a week when the UK has been the first to approve the Pfizer vaccine. So people in the UK are going to start being vaccinated next week. This has been accompanied with quite a bit of sort of flag waving rhetoric from ministers since the news broke, basically showing off that our regulator managed to approve it first and suggesting that this this is somehow either a result of Brexit or because Britain is just simply a better country, as Gavin Williamson put it. Stephen, you got a number of responses to your morning call about the vaccine, didn't you? And what does that tell us about the way that ministers are framing the news? Yeah, so yesterday, well, Wednesday, if you are someone who has not kindly subscribed and therefore gets on the day access. So on on Wednesday, obviously, the day of the press conference, I sent it after the press conference. You know, obviously, I usually get replies mostly from a kind of cast of regulars or people who live in one of the countries mentioned in the smalls or work in a relevant industry or, or, you know, the ones I enjoy less, which is people pointing out typos. But yeah, I got, you know, more than 100, which, okay, is a teeny tiny fraction of the number of people who actually receive it, but is well in excess of the number of emails I have ever got about a single topic before. I mean, yeah, like us leaving the EU didn't get that many replies. Dom Cummings didn't get that many replies from people who some had reasonable fears, some had fears that I would say were sort of like out and out conspiracism. But actually, even the ones which were out and out conspiracism. So to take one which I specifically decided I had to tackle in today's... So I got enough of them. I thought, okay, right, I, I, this is beyond my like logistical ability to like do a bespoke, like, look, here's what I was like, okay, I clearly need to do like a... And also, right, 
every email and letter you get is representative of a much larger group of people who have not sent you an email or a letter. What I found unnerving about them, so the message the government is sending about how, you know, like we can do this because we've left the EU, which is not true. We, From a legal perspective, we will not have left the EU until the 31st of December. Right? We have exercised a power that every member state has. Yeah, the kind of attempt to frame it into Brexit. And actually, you know, pharmaceuticals is something which is a area of strength in our economy and our and yeah and, and in British life, right? So actually like the Williamson message is one of those things where it's just like this is broadly true in some way was arguably true in some ways. But the thing I found unnerving about yeah, Hancock and, and, and Reese Mogg saying yesterday, oh, we've been able to expedite this and today's is that there's clearly among liberal left remainers a sizable group of people, and obviously I think they're in general a sizable group of people who are unnerved by the speed. Mm. And among those group of people, some of those people will of course be leavers and conservative loyalists. Yeah, and whether in you're either of the either or both of those groups who will be reassured by a message that goes, This is because Brexit's great and we're great. But there are, of course, also people who have, and, you know, our former colleague Barbara Speed wrote a brilliant piece for the eye about this, about how actually the term anti-vaxxers sometimes not useful because mm-hmm. anti-vaccination sentence really refers to a fringe of a fringe of people who have just outright conspiracist beliefs that are, you know, there's no nice way to say this, just crazy. The problematic long tail of, of vaccination nervousness are people who have plausible, sincere and kind of like seriously held like anxieties which you can reassure people on by, by explaining why their anxieties are legitimate, but also why they don't need to worry too much with them. For that group of people in the like left remain space, government ministers being like, don't worry, we've gone faster than the EU. And indeed, actually, because obviously some of them, the thing I found most unnerving about it was lots of these replies were from people who've never emailed me before, whereas most morning call respondents are people I've come to mostly to know and love. And in some cases, merely to be like, oh, it's that guy who I don't understand what it is about the spe- spelling Muslims with an O. And it's like, a, yep, you are a bad <laughs> But like, literally, like, it's like <laughs> you iron constants in life is we'll all die eventually. And anyone who spells Muslims with an O just is a bad person. But, you know, so most of these one people I, I knew very well. But actually, even among some of our regular pro-leave correspondents, they were like, I don't understand why we've done this so fast. Mm-hmm. And there was this concern that we've essentially decided to be guinea pigs. One of the biggest central threats to public health are anxieties about vaccines. And I just think it's so unhelpful, not only in terms of this vaccine, but in every future vaccine we will approve after Brexit to be like, the great thing about Brexit is that we can do this slightly quickly. Not least because like we're really talking about like a matter of days, because it's a two-dose vaccine. The number of people in the United Kingdom who will have actually received even one of their courses, let alone both, by the time the US approves it on later this month and the EU approves it at the end of this month is, is vanishingly small without wishing to be morbid about it. They're all in a group of people who will who are at sufficiently high risk and the risk that there's something that hasn't been exposed in the trials to them is, is bluntly a lesser risk. Yeah, I did find it really unnerving and worrying because I think it does show, I mean, I wasn't surprised we know that there's conspiracism across the political spectrum. But I think yeah. it does show that the government is operating as if it's like cost free to go, hey, this is an opportunity to remind everyone that Brexit's great. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I would urge listeners who haven't read your morning call this morning to read it because you you actually put together that explanation of, of what it means that we've approved it first and, and sort of how the first stages of it are actually going to play out and therefore why it's so unhelpful when asked, how come we're the first or what does it mean that, that we're the first, that ministers respond about how fantastic Britain is or how we've got this freedom after Brexit, which is obviously not relevant directly to the fact that that our regulator has been the first to approve this vaccine, rather than explaining what it means, reassuring people, taking them through the first few stages of the of the rollout, explaining what the challenges and obstacles will be, and also, like you say, and you you rightly make the the distinction that our very good former colleague Barbara Speed has made in in a number of articles between that very hardcore tiny but stable minority of of anti-vaxxers who would oppose a vaccine no matter what it was because because they're against them due to certain theories that they have which is a sort of a constant very very low percentage of people compared with those who maybe manifest what's known as vaccine hesitancy which is more of the worry in the UK and around the world about the take up of covid vaccines and and it's not really a result of conspiracy theories or sort of hostile foreign actors or disinformation campaigns but more the failure of 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 public health funding communication messaging so you know if you're a new mother or if you're from an ethnic minority where you need public health messaging in in your own language and you don't receive that information or you don't get a health visitor because health visitors have fallen in in this country the number of health visitors has fallen during the years of austerity then then you're more likely not to know the importance of vaccination rather than sort of have some kind of very very adamant forthright theory about it and that's that's a government failing that's that's a policy responsibility that obviously it's not as sexy for the media or ministers to to speak about so i think there needs to be from the government a recognition that they have to it's like what you often say stephen they need to sort of manage expectations and 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 actually explain what the difficulties are going to be we've already had a confusion about whether care home residents which are the priority group for this vaccine are going to actually receive the vaccination first or whether it will have to be in hospitals first because of the way that the vaccine is stored. So already they're not really making it clear who's going to have to wait a bit longer than they probably should do. And for something like this, I agree, party politics should not come into it at all, because not only do you risk alienating a certain demographic of people to the extent that they might be reluctant to take the vaccine, but you also risk losing the trust of the public as as, as has been degraded quite a bit through sort of operational and communications failings throughout this pandemic, which is why it's just so galling to see to see the comments like Gavin Williamson made this morning being the sort of stock response to this news. Sentences I wouldn't have expected to use at the start of this week. I'm slightly more sympathetic to Williamson's answer today because, yeah, with obviously like the massive disclaimer and if I was in this situation, I simply wouldn't be a member of this government or this ruling party. But when you're in a situation where your party colleagues have said something incredibly stupid and you yourself clearly don't want to agree with, you have very limited space to manoeuvre and kind of going, well, we're, we're great at this, we're a great country, is kind of all that's left, particularly if you do not have the knowledge base or the ability to explain the mm-hmm. actual issue. Now, separately, do I think that the Minister, the Secretary of State for Education ought to be able to... <laughs> the, 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 like the, the maddening thing here is that 
the one of the problems with the fact that like the word world leading has been thrown around like confetti is there's now so much cynicism about it. But actually, like pharmaceuticals, research excellence, our regulatory regime politics, these are all things where we genuinely are well world leading. That's partly, mm. of course, the Brussels effect. We've been part of the European Medicines Agency, you know, for but also there is a reason why the European Medicines Agency was based here before Brexit. And you know, it's not just because like it was like eleven thirty at night and someone wanted to make, you know, Jim Callahan feel better about the common agricultural policy or whatever. It's it's because this is a, an area of national strength. Like it, like it genuinely is. But yeah, it's it's such an avoidable mess. Like no party in the democratic world has ever received enough support than if if they only succeeded in getting buy-in mm. for a vaccine for their supporters, then they would be at or near the levels of required buy-in. I think it, what I think is revealing, I think also it reveals among, you know, a government committed to, you know, a diamond-hard Brexit, actually a, a lot of ambient contempt for Leave voters. In the, like, this is clearly like about going, okay, so we want to start talking about the benefits of Brexit before we probably or possibly sign a trade deal with a bunch of concessions in it. So we've got the stuff that we can do differently on agriculture, trailed in the Times this week. And actually, you know, from a biodiversity perspective, there's lots of quite good stuff in there from a, with my crusty green hat on. <laughs> And then it's kind of like, oh, the vaccine, well, we can fold that into our kind of isn't Brexit great, which is only an okay risk to take if you believe that conspiracism and vaccine anxiety is confined to levers, which I'm sorry, is just not true. The vast majority of the people emailing with with these concerns are people who, who voted to stay in the European Union. People who, you know, were very committed to a second referendum, yeah, including loads of people who were also very committed to, to Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, and this is just based on the core of correspondence that have emailed me about other topics. But there's no kind of like cordon sanitaire where you can where you can just go like, oh well, don't worry, the Remainers get it. They're sophisticated people, and, <laughs> yeah. and I think it's pretty fascinating that like this government, which loves to go on about how Remainers view leavers like that way, which I think is true of, of, a, of a depressing number of Remainers, also clearly believes that to be true. There's just such a strong underlying like layer of contempt about a large chunk of people who voted to leave from the Brexit elite. Yeah, exactly. And these are the people that they owe for, for their support and their position of power as well. So it, it does show a sort of contempt for the people and and a suggestion that you think you can use them and mold them to your own purposes and i completely agree you know that there aren't really party lines to be drawn in the sort of anti-vax sphere like i said it's a small constant minority very small very vocal but stable minority of people who just oppose vaccines outright and actually what the government would be better served doing is communicating to the people who are behind the reasons for the lower uptake of vaccines that's been a sort of rumbling issue over a number of years long before the pandemic, which is partly due to austerity, partly due to overlooking the role of local government. I've already heard from voices in councils who are concerned about this vaccine rollout because it feels very top-down NHS centralised. And as we've seen through other parts of of the pandemic response, like um, contact tracing, for example, councils are often far better placed than than a centralised system to know their residents, to know what the barriers might be to their residents engaging with public health responses. And 
I fear that they may be being overlooked in in this response as well. And and the proof will obviously be in the rollout and it hasn't started yet. But that's something that I'm going to keep an eye on because, yeah, not just in the contact tracing, but also in the original free school meal vouchers over the holidays and the national shielding boxes as well. There's sort of growing consensus that, that councils would have been able to deliver those kind of projects much more efficiently than either outsourced or, or central government did at the time so but obviously that would require more local government funding and as we've seen that's something that the government is very very reticent about if you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too then why not subscribe to the new statesman you can get 12 weeks for 12 pounds go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12 Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So this question has come from an anonymous caller. Is a scotch egg a substantial meal? So (laughs) for listeners who may not always be plugged in to the matrix of um, Twitter jokes that sort of build like a tidal wave on our timelines after a minister has been forced into saying something a bit stupid. This whole debate has come from George Eustace telling LBC that a scotch egg would count as a, as a substantial meal if you if you had it at a pub in a tier two area where you're allowed to go and eat in pubs that serve substantial meals if there was table service at the pub. Shortly afterwards, Michael Gove said that he thinks that a couple of scotch eggs are merely a starter. 45 minutes, he then told Good Morning Britain, it's a starter. But then, of course, as per this government's usual modus operandi, he then U-turned and did confirm to ITV News that a scotch egg is a substantial meal. (laughs) And since then, it's kind of rumbled on. So like Ed Miliband, I think, has said that he wouldn't be photographed eating a scotch egg. So he's clearly still thinking about his bacon sandwich moment. The important part of, of, of these kind of questions, and I know people... A lot of commentators have said, have said, oh, you know, Britain is is an embarrassment having a debate about a pub snack while all sorts of other more important things are happening. But it, it is quite important because this is how people relate to the restrictions on a day to day relatable level, isn't it? So the importance of the Scotch egg debate is it, it basically highlights the confusion about why you're allowed to go and have a substantial meal in a pub, but you're not allowed to just go and have a pint in a pub under the tier two restrictions and the reason is that if you do go and sit down at your table with with a scotch egg or whatever other food you're less likely to sort of 
walk around the pub like a social butterfly or get drunk and then behave in a way that breaks the social distancing guidelines and all sorts of other reasons too, which if you think think it through logically, then 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 you understand the reasoning, even if it's a complete nightmare for you if you're an owner of a pub that doesn't serve food. So it kind of makes sense to have these these sort of debates because it makes people think about the restrictions and what's behind them at a relatable level. I know that's that, that may be a controversial thing to say in the Scotch Egg discourse, but I, I don't actually think it's that bad. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, so proving that it turns out there is no listener question that I will not get grumpy about in lockdown. I actually think that the, the thing about the, I mean, so, you know, one, from a technical, it turns out also that I'm torn now between my desire to be like, actually, guys, I have an incredibly earnest point and my inability to resist food discourse. Of course, the Scotch Egg is a substantial meal. Right, people eat eat as as their solitary lunch all the time. People do treat it as a whole portion, therefore it's a substantial meal. The, and actually, I don't mind like you know like listener questions, people making jokes about it on Twitter. But it really mithers me like the number of like broadcasters who like asked que- asked follow up questions. So like, look, if you want to do a gotcha question of a minister, right? Do you know what? here's a great question: the average British pub makes a fifty grand profit in December in the Christmas month. The government proposes to give them a one-off payment of a grand for them to survive through the pandemic. I mean, like, why? Like, who who thinks that's a good idea? If you're concerned about, you know, like, protecting the currency or retaining our fiscal firepower for, like, the next pandemic, then why are you literally giving an amount of money that is individually derisory but still adds up to quite a lot in order for, like, mm-hmm. business to close anyway? I mean... If if you just feel like doing something wasteful and insulting to the pub sector, like you know, just get Rishi Sunak to travel the country, burning fifties in front of pub landlords, like, <laughs> you know, like would be cheaper, and we might at least get a viral video out of it. The central issue here is that hospitality cannot operate at its usual levels of profitability with social distancing regulations in place. If you're someone which has never really served food, or if you're wet led, which is I, you're someone which serves food but mainly profits on alcohol, I like, you know. The average pub might, one might go to watch a football game, for example, will serve some food, but broadly, like its average customer just buys alcohol, right? Mm. If you're any of those places, right? You know, like the pub at the end of the road where I will go to watch an Arsenal game when they're playing away or whatever, it, it can't be as full as it would have been during a normal Arsenal game, which means it can't survive because, you know, it's a pub showing football in North London. It's kind of reliant on being able to pack out Arsenal games. And the question of whether or not they can like slightly exploit the substantial meal loophole to serve slightly more alcohol than they otherwise would is, is, is kind of a it's, it's a minor issue. And the question that we should be asking the government is, look, why aren't you providing enough support for businesses to survive the next however many months? Because the argument for going, we can't protect everything, the economy needs to adjust, we need to stop interfering in the economy. Uh, yeah, we need to protect incomes rather than protect jobs was one based around the idea that we might be waiting you know five years four years three years a decade for a vaccine or we might be waiting two years three years four years for palliative treatments which mean that you of course don't need to worry about about healthcare infrastructure being overwhelmed but that's not the case now so like why are we doing this why have we got like a sort of fiscal policy kind of based around you know, based around the idea that we might need to save this fiscal firepower for this five-year crisis when it's not going to be a five-year crisis. Yeah, and this is why I think you're right, right? The Scotch Egg question is actually quite important because 
it reveals a couple of things. The first is that hospitality does not have sufficient protection. And the fact they don't have sufficient protection is one of the reasons why so many of them are observing the the spirit rather than the the letter of the law. I mean, mm. to take an example of a place I know where, you know, if someone like tries to book for more than six and is told that they can't and then says, OK, well, we'll just come as a six, having gone like, oh, you know, does, does this group count or whatever? Well, those family with multiple children, those, you know, clearly aren't one household, right? But that business has been left to die. They're heavily incentivized to go, we can't enforce this anyway, so let's not try. And that story will be playing itself out and is playing itself out throughout the country. And so it is a serious question. Yeah, well, it's a serious issue that is kind of refracted unhelpfully through ministers not being able to answer one question. But also it comes back to like the weirdness of how we've done the coronavirus laws, where everything is approached to this like, you must not do X, rather than treating it like, like, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of things where you're notionally violating the highway code. But you know, like it doesn't like specifically say don't drive fast on rural roads at night or whatever, right? That's contained within the spirit of the highway code. And the kind of central problem is that the government kind of has tried to do this like, you must do this, we're coming down from on high, while, you know, Rishi is desperately trying to like find ways to cut down on spending. Yeah, the lawyer Adam Wagner is very good on on every time they bring out new restrictions, he goes through each of the regulations and he kind of highlights how many exceptions there are to every rule because they've decided to do these kind of restrictions in this top-down way where instead of it being clear what the sort of spirit of the law is, it opens themselves up to being asked very specific questions about details of people usually people's lives and family situations but sometimes things like does a scotch egg count or not and it becomes very clear very quickly that ministers don't really know what each of those exceptions would entail and what people should do in those circumstances and instead of sort of communicating clearly they tie themselves in knots about about details and maybe that's not all their fault you know it might be the the questions that the media focus on asking them but even so it's a persistent communication problem. I mean, I, I can't remember wh- when it was, but there was a certain restrictions that were announced and Boris Johnson couldn't even outline them when he was asked the, asked about them at a press conference. And and that just doesn't inspire trust. And as we've always said throughout this thing and, and often on, on the podcast is that if you can't inspire trust in people, if you can't reassure people that you're all on, on the same page and that you know what the rules are and that you can communicate them in a non-embarrassing way, then you you start to lose that goodwill that you need for people to to get you through, especially now with the vaccine on the horizon. You know, you can hear the kind of desperation in some of the comments that they're making. Just people, please, you know, stick to the rules, you know, be steadfast, see this through until we've got an end in sight. You can't really ask people to do that without having built up the the goodwill beforehand and hope that it's all going to go as you'd as you'd wish especially with the competing interests, like you say, or the competing focuses of of Rishi Sunak and the health secretary. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague, Stephen Bush. Alva Ray is on holiday. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search disorder wherever you get your podcasts.